Hola and welcome to the last episode of the second season of Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the MRC University of Glasgow Center for Value Research. My name is Elior Andai Cortez and I am a postdoc here at CBR and your host for this episode. In this final episode, we change gear from innate immunity to virus virology and evolution. Today, Connor and I talk with Dr. Robert Guilford, CBR resident evolutionary biologist and senior research fellow. Rob's lab combines sequence data as software development to explore virus genomics and coevolution of viruses and their hosts. For example, he applies virus genomics to help and guide treatment of HIV-infected patients to support genomic surveillance and outbreak response for blue toe and rabies, and to explore the diversity of endogenous viral elements in published genome sequence data. Listen to him to tell us how he became interested in this biobiology by starting out working on endogenous retrovirus at Imperial College long before the NGS metagenomics techniques come about. I think we can start. Okay. Um, so probably we can go around the room and introduce ourselves. Okay. Um, so I'm Connor. I'm a postdoc in the lab of John McLaughlin. I'm Elio. I'm a postdoc in the same lab as Connor, and I work with Hepsi and Dengue. And I'm uh, Rob Gifford. I'm a senior research fellow. Okay, so uh, maybe you can give us a bit of um, your background. So where were you born? So uh, I was born in Banff, which is a fishing village in the northeast of Scotland. Okay, so not the Banff in Canada. Mm, no. no. Um, so then where did you go to? So when did you first get really interested in science? Was it in school or...? Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, I was interested in sort of nature and, and biology when I was from quite a young age. Um, uh, so I was sort of very interested in wildlife and, mm. you know, um, fungi, okay, yeah. things like that. Um, I think, you know, sort of, sort of a little bit later, you know, sort of adolescent years, I kind of forgot about all of that <laughs> um, yeah um, and actually um, I applied to university so I, I went to university here in Glasgow um, and I uh, originally got on to sort of a, a biology course um, but I, I my plan had been to transfer into English right yeah so um, a traditional plan well, it was really just because, um, you know, I, uh, uh, I, uh, so I, I, I sort of was interested in writing um, and I wanted to do English at university, but, you know, I didn't really have the grades. Okay. I mean, I, I had, they were okay. I had okay grades, but they were not amazing. So I couldn't get into English. And so that's why I went into science initially, thinking that because I knew that y you could transfer Right, once, once you were, were in. Once yeah. you were in, yeah. Um, but as it turned out, by sort of the second year, when I sort of specialised in zoology, I sort of got incredibly interested again. Yeah. Um, so I stuck with it. Right. Yeah. So then what kind of things did you do during your zoology degree? I assume it wasn't much viruses? Or was it... No, it didn't really touch on viruses. You should sort of work through the animal kingdom mm -hmm. from the sort of, you know, 
simple organisms up to the more complex ones. Um, just a bit of anatomy, a bit of ecology, and some evolution, which was the thing that really, I think, um, you know, really uh, inspired me when I was at university. Because believe it or not, I, I, I uh, when I uh, first went into university, I, I had, I, no one had really taught us about evolution. So I didn't really know about evolution. Um, and like finding out about that was like, it was like a revelation, you know, because all of a sudden, all these things that I was kind of quite interested in, um, you know, just this phenomena in the natural world or whatever, um, was sort of, uh, th there was something that connected them all in a way that I could understand. Um, so that was sort of really intoxicating thing actually. And I sort of became, from that point, I was sort of really back in biology and interested again. Do you remember what was the first idea or concept that you remember that was, oh, this is amazing. Or um, was in general? Uh, I don't really remember a specific thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it, um, it's just that the, rather than it being sort of disparate facts about mm -hmm. biology, you know, this species does this and this species does that, there's a, 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 you know, a causality behind it that is kind of, I think, quite um, intuitive to, to understand. Um, so, it, you know, really mm -hmm. it was that in a general sense. So I guess just learning about evolution is one thing, but when did you step into research? Did you get a, did you have a project in Glasgow? Or? Um, yeah, well, we had sort of our, our final year zoology projects. Um, and uh, actually mine was on um, uh, tree frogs, ah. a type of tree frog. Uh, and uh, I guess there are many tree, frog, tree frogs in Glasgow. <laughs> uh, well, the war after this. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you've ever been into the Graham Care building underneath the zoology department. They have kind of a, a, there's a sort of area for keeping live animals. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah okay. Tropical down there, so okay. yeah, it's all heated and so on. Right. And um, so that's where the tree frogs live. <laughs> But they escaped, and um, and uh, they then went on to sort of take up residence in the uh, drainage. The way that you we knew that was because they, these particular frogs would sing, right. so they had a sort of peep, peeping song. So you'd hear it just down in, <laughs> in the drainage system. I think that might be one to revisit in the sort of uh, evolution of the yeah frogs. yeah they, <laughs> might, they adapted might have adapted yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then you're doing your zoology degree. Yeah. When did the viruses come into play? Um, so, I guess it was in actually my sort of third year at university. I, so I, um, I did a, an exchange year um, where I went to North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Okay. Um, and I, I did uh, so my third year, so it's four years of undergraduate here. And the third year I did um, on exchange. And apparently I was the first science student to actually do an exchange at Glasgow. <laughs> so there was really no structure for it. So kind of when I got to the States, nothing was laid out for me. I kind of had to make it up. Right. So I just kind of took 
like courses that interested me. One of them was this uh, online course about emerging disease. It must have been one of the first ever online courses because it, it was sort of 90, I guess it was around about 94. And um, I remember because it was like we were just starting to use email at that point. Um, and yeah, this um, there were some really that there were some really brilliant teachers on this course and sort of asking, kind of, they were, it was the first um, people were just maybe only beginning to really think about microbial disease in an ecological and evolutionary way. So. Um, I guess kind of historically, people have been very focused on particular pathogens, mm -hmm. particular, um, uh, you know, uh, experimental systems. Um, and just starting to kind of move beyond that to sort of think about microbes in the context of you know, the environment and the ecology and. Um, some of that was, you know, related to emerging disease because it, the fact that you sort of had um, new viruses appearing, uh, new diseases, and it would obviously lead to the question: Why? Where? Where are these things coming from? You know, is there something? Is there some sort of way of comprehending why this is happening that relates back to biology and ecology and so on? So. Um, yeah, I, I sort of got um, really interested in that. And then, uh, uh, like many people, I guess, in our field, I, I, I read sort of popular science books about it. So the, the one that really influenced me at university was uh, The Coming Plague mm -hmm. um, by Lloyd. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of influenced me to... Uh, want to sort of do postgraduate research in that area. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the next thing I did was a, a, a master's course at Imperial College. Um, it's called, it was called um, um, the Molecular Biology and Pathology of Viruses. <clears throat> and so that gave me the kind of a bit of the virology background, a bit of the lab background. Um, and from there I went to do a PhD. Okay. So did you have much lab experience before jumping into the masters or? None, no, no really none. Okay. And then so what kind of lab experience did you get during the masters? Um, so, uh, well, I worked, so we had a, we did sort of lab practicals and things um, throughout it and then we had a project at the end and um, I actually worked on hepatitis C. Uh, with uh, Graham Foster oh, cool. and yeah. uh, Mark Thurl. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um. And the PhD was also in Imperial College? Yeah. Um, uh, and what was about? That was also Imperial, but um, it was kind of a left turn because mm. it was uh, on endogenous viruses. Oh. So that was where I started to get in, interested in um, endogenous viruses. Was that a choice, or was it just this happened to be a PhD project? Uh, no, it was it was really a, a choice. I mean, I, I I guess it was a combination of both. Yeah. Um, because uh, I sort of I I I I'd been out to the campus and I'd met some people there, and I thought you know this might be somewhere where I'd want to do a PhD, 
Um, but beyond that, it was really like, uh, uh, so as I'd mentioned, you know, I was interested in sort of ecology and evolution of viruses. Uh, and the appeal of the endogenous viruses, from this is endogenous retroviruses, I should say. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to have like a broad scale view and the really, for most viruses, we just didn't have the data at that mm -hmm. time. So this is far before any of the metagenomics or anything like that. So, so, you know, if you wanted to ask kind of big picture questions about uh, cross-species transmission and uh, evolution over long periods of time, um, the endogenous viruses really gave you a way to do that uh, <coughs> before you had a lot of like sampling of viruses in the environment. I mean, um, we used uh, just PCR basically. So uh, this is a work that was started by my supervisor, uh, Mike Tristan. And uh, so he would take uh, degenerate primers and uh, just a genomic DNA sample of a species of interest and um, using those primers you kind of amplify a sort of heterogeneous mix of whatever was there on the genome mm -hmm. and uh, not only are you sort of sampling a lot of different viruses but you have this added dimension that you're kind of sampling back in time because you're looking at the, the genomic DNA yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think now would be a good time to introduce what is an endogenous virus. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so an endogenous virus is really just a genomic sequence. Um, so it might not actually um, be capable of producing a virus at all. It might just be a fragment of a virus. Um, but it's a sequence derived from a viral genome. So what happens, we think, is that uh, the, a a, a, a germline cell, which is basically a cell, uh, either a, a zygote or a, a, a very early embryo cell, is infected with a virus. And by one means or another, um, some of the viral uh, genomic sequence ends up being integrated into the genome of that germline cell. And should the cell survive, then those sequences will basically be part of the genomic makeup of the resulting organism. Um, and from that point, most, the most likely outcome from there is that, like any new gene in a population, it, it, it just disappears through genetic drift. But seemingly, because genomes are so full of these sequences, occasionally, um, the, the, this new allele can actually spread through the population up to the point where it, it becomes fixed and every individual in the population now carries this integrated viral sequence in their genome. Um, and sort of once it's there and fixed, it, it, it's quite hard to, to lose that. Um, so a lot of these viral, uh, these endogenous viral sequences uh, derive from integration events that occurred millions of years ago. 
Um, so you're really looking at a sequence that's derived from an ex extremely ancient virus. Um, so it's a way of kind of looking back in time through viruses, which otherwise we have really very little means of doing. How, how do you study these integrations in, in, in the genome? Because if you say that now that we have a lot of data, a lot of metagenomics, and now you have a lot of... Uh, the sequences giving us uh, the opportunity to just to sequence everything we want, and they, you have thousands of genomes outside. How do you go every single one of that genomes and you scan for every single retrovirus or, or uh, indigenous virus? Well, so these days, mm -hmm. um, I almost entirely use in silico approaches. Uh -huh. So. As I mentioned, like when, when we started doing this work, we had a kind of PCR-based yeah. approach. Um, but something that happened really during my PhD was that more and more genome data started yeah, to, to, yeah. to be available. For the human genome, really, was the only significant one in, in the beginning. Um, but, you know, you can imagine, you know, we were, <coughs> you would run your PCR, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would work, Sometimes. and uh, then you would, you know, do your sequencing, and you get your, um, you know, sequences back, and that would always be quite an exciting moment, you yeah, know, because it'd yeah. be all of this. We're talking about Sanger sequence, right? Yeah, Sanger yeah. sequencing. That's right. And um, uh, so you know, that's the payoff is mm -hmm. getting the sequence, and when you could substitute the whole PCR process mm -hmm. for just running a blast search, you start to question yeah. whether, whether it's really necessary to do PCR. Or it's, it became more and more appealing mm -hmm. to just do things in silica. Um, so, uh, and that has actually, that was really just the beginning. I mean, as you know now, there's hundreds of, thousands of genomes uh -huh. available, so way more data than we can actually, uh, you know, feasibly analyze. So these days, yeah, it's basically in, in silico. And then you have a tool that can do that That's right. automatically. Well, well, yeah, I mean... How do you come... Uh, because you developed the, this bioinformatic tool. Yeah. How do you come up with this, like, let's do it quick? Well, I don't know if it's quick or not, but... Uh, quick like before you to consider that was PCR and now it's in silico that yeah. is quick how do you come up with this uh, like just create like a automatic tool that is doing this 24 7 all the time right right I mean so that, that kind of an interesting story behind that mm -hmm. I mean um, initially we didn't do it like you know in any sort of automated way mm -hmm. so it was really kind of sort of sort of manual running blasts through uh -huh. the internet and then you have your sequence editing you have your you know alignment editor and just kind of um you know very sort of point and click uh, we're talking about you have all the virus or all the fragments of virus you want to look in an alignment and yeah. then you look for that in the blast way yeah with what you're saying okay right, uh -huh. yeah. so um and then like well you know a lot of our analysis of these sequences were based on phylogenetics, so you know you're, you are constantly working with sequences and mm -hmm. alignments and trees, 
but usually what you would have would be something like an alignment of exogenous retroviruses. So, retro, you know, your, your proper viruses. Yeah. And then you start to add in your endogenous sequences to that and make a phylogeny. <coughs> and you're kind of looking at what is the relationship between the endogenous ones and the yeah. exogenous ones. Um, but sort of, it was really in my first postdoc. Uh, so, um, after I'd done this PhD, mm -hmm. I went to work at UCL. Uh -huh. And. Um, a little bit of a switch for me because I was then now working on HIV mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. in the context of kind of um, drug resistance so um, by just real sheer coincidence uh, the part of the HIV genome that um, was really relevant for that work was the uh, polymerase and the protease genes um, which was exactly the same segment that we used to make all of our phylogenies and, and so on with the uh, endogenous retroviruses um, and in so in my postdoc what 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 people were interested in were kind of high throughput pipelines yeah. for processing that data mm -hmm. so it was around about the time where uh, resistance testing had just started to kind of become uh, you know, a widespread thing. And resistance testing, uh, what that was, was uh, if you were, uh, if you had a, a diagnosis of mm -hmm. HIV positive, you would have some, uh, uh, they would sequence the virus mm -hmm. uh, in your in your blood, uh -huh. um, but particularly this genomic region, because yeah. uh, the point of it was to see whether um, maybe you've got some pre-existing re resistance there, and that might mm -hmm. feed into what drugs they're going to give yeah. you and so on. Um, but it, it it had recently become routine, sort of mm -hmm. clinically routine. So what that meant was all of a sudden there was this huge you know, build-up of sequence data for HIV-1, although it was only for these specific mm -hmm. genes, yeah. Um, which was maybe, you know, I guess like the first, or at least one of the first, um, uh, it's the first time that that situation had actually arisen, where you had really quite large numbers of sequences accumulating from yeah. a particular virus. Um, so I was kind of charged with the responsibility of sort of developing a, a kind of pipeline for mm -hmm. processing that data in the UK. Um, so I sort of learned, um, I, I sort of uh, had to kind of, I guess, um, become familiar mm -hmm. with uh, the existing tools for doing that. And it, it just came quite naturally to sort of extend that. I started to think, well, why don't I just adapt this a bit, maybe get BLAST in there and some other tools that I would need mm -hmm. and I can basically apply something similar to, um, to my endogenous retrovirus work. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So you were still wor you working on HIV, but you still had an interest in yeah. endogenous. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, managed to keep it quiet. Managed, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, I was sort of working a bit on that in the background, and um, uh, I suppose like the first sort of really important me result that came out of that was uh, the identification of uh, relic which um, is rabbit endogenous lentivirus K is what we called it um, but it had always been a thing during my um, PhD work um, Mike had always talked about you know we've got to try and find an endogenous lentivirus that would be super interesting so be, yeah. before this end there was only endogenous non-lentiviruses? Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, I should uh, explain that briefly. So, um, there are endogenous retroviruses are highly abundant in um, vertebrate genomes. But, um, on the whole, they tend to be from particular lineages of retroviruses. And, for the most part, they are not derived from uh, what were then called complex retroviruses, and maybe people still use that term. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that includes lentiviruses, the genus that have includes HIV-1, and also delta retroviruses, uh, which uh, is the genus that includes human T-cell leukemia virus. Um, and I, I, I guess we just always were you know, aware of the fact that because those genera contain human viruses, there's an added level of interest okay. in those particular species. But um, as far as anyone was aware, uh, those didn't occur as endogenous sequences. Um, and it kind of been this, uh, we'd always been hoping that we would pull one out with the PCR-based methods, um, but that never happened. This is all during your PhD? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it never happened in my PhD. Um, but then after the PhD, and actually during my second postdoc, so I was still working on HIV drug resistance, but um, I'm now at Stanford. Um, and I actually, only about like two months into my postdoc at Stanford, I was still running these uh, these sort of automated blasts yep. in the background. And then one day this sequence popped up um, that appeared to be a lentivirus. Uh, so that was really exciting. And, and actually that that's probably my kind of, um, my supervisor at that time, but it kindly allowed me to kind of write that up uh, 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 yeah, uh, so. while working on yes. <laughs> oh, right. Right. did right. they get an authorship or yeah they did yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. or maybe not on the first one because actually no actually no not on the so um, I think there were only four authors on that first paper this is uh, the relic the relic paper yeah um, uh, <coughs> there might be it might be five, I don't remember. But um, as soon as that was published, another one right. appeared. 
Um, so my supervisor was on, on that one. Okay. That was uh, the um, it was a Lima in a Lima, yeah. And then what? I guess what was important about that? Well, um, I guess that one had a, a extra level of interest in this, in just purely because it was in a primate. Okay. So. Um, mm. It's one thing to have an endogenous lentivirus. People are interested in lentiviruses because because of the human the connection to human immunodeficiency viruses. Um, but uh, to have an endogenous primate one, I guess, was perceived to be <coughs> more interesting still. Uh, but I guess mean, is the goal then an endogenous primate HIV? Or well, that would be very nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's next on your Well, yeah, that, that has never happened. And in fact, you know, the lemur, the lemur endogenous virus is really more like a non-primate one. And it's, it seems quite clear now that um, that's quite, a, quite an important distinction. So the, the simian immunodeficiency viruses and the human immunodeficiency viruses, all of those seem really quite different from all the other lentiviruses. What's interesting about rabbits, I've heard a couple of the retrovirus people looking at rabbits. Is there any any particular reason? Well, um, I'm not sure why you would have that impression. Something that maybe you're, I mean, certainly something that that happened while I was at uh, UCL was that there was this, new human retrovirus that was reported which turned out to be a contaminant when it was uh, derived it was ultimately found to be derived from a a rabbit Mm. okay because i think it was adam fletcher he was looking at trims in rabbits and Mm, uh, i just wondered whether there was something about rabbits Um, yeah well i think i mean so um, part of the reason why the endogenous lentiviruses were interesting to other people in the, in the sort of same research space um, was that uh, it was becoming, it was just becoming clear then that there were these innate antiviral proteins <coughs> such as TRIM5 which seem very specifically to target lentiviruses um, or retroviruses. But in the case of TRIM5, I believe it's uh, mm-hmm. pretty much lentiviruses. There might be some debate about that, I don't know. Um, but that being the case, it was really useful to have a way of looking at the timeline because it sort of begs the question, you know, if there are these molecules that, um, you know, host genes that specifically target lentiviruses, then they didn't just appear overnight. Um, and, you know, that's an important bit of context, actually, is that, you know, prior to finding these endogenous sequences, um, it had pretty much been assumed by a lot of people that, that lentiviruses are kind of new viruses 
and there were a lot of open questions at that time about the overall speed of viral evolution and um, I mean there actually is a paper that was published at one point that was saying that HIV-1 and HIV-2 were no more than 50 years so it gives you an idea yeah um, so you know that like orders of magnitude difference at, uh, in in uh, it really depended who you spoke to but you know some people had the uh, notion that these are really things that have kind of appeared almost in within a sort of human time scale of history so you know like a, an entire genus of RNA viruses might have appeared within the past thousand years. Okay. Um, but these uh, endogenous sequences would show very clearly and definitively that in fact they're millions of years old. Okay. And that jived very well with these findings coming out about innate antiviral uh, uh, proteins. Okay, because they definitely couldn't have happened in 50 years. That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay. So then what is the timeline of led to virus evolution in the world? Uh, so I think it's still, you know, that's still very much open to debate. Um, so I think the oldest sequences that, well, okay, so there are ways <coughs> using endogenous sequences to get very, really quite high confidence minimum ages. But it's a really is a minimum, so it's not saying how old the, the okay. genus is. It's just giving you a point where it must be at least that old. Okay. Um, and those data points tend to be kind of clustered around about sort of between five, fifteen million years ago. I think there maybe are some older dates now coming out of um, the most recent endogenous antivirus from the Coligo. Uh, which is a flying squirrel, oh. and uh, I think in that case, um, you might be looking back sort of 30 something in that region. Okay. Um, uh, we actually um, inferred dates or attempted to infer dates sort of using other approaches. So, in the case of Madagascar, it was kind of interesting. So, the, the Lima endogenous retrovirus. Um, Lemurs are obviously restricted to Madagascar, mm -hmm. and Madagascar, being a kind of island continent, um, has had relatively little, has remained basically isolated for about 80 million years. Um, so either um, there's a virus that infected lemurs. Uh, before they were ever in Madagascar, was that they're thought to have colonised the island. So, if it's the, if if you assume no cross species transmission, then it would date antiviruses probably back to that time. Um, but even if it is, if if you do allow for cross species transmission, there actually haven't been that many events where new mammalian species have colonised the island. So you can kind of try to make inferences that way as well. That may, that might sort of push things back a bit further. Um, but I, 
at this point, I would say that, you know, all bets are off about how old they might be. Because particularly when you look at, you know, some of the findings from spuma viruses and so on that are suggesting dates in sort of order of kind of hundreds of millions of years, possibly. And just to give a context, what is what was it like a hundred million years ago? Uh, <laughs> well, that's... Um, Fish or... <laughs> no, uh, um, but it would be sort of proto, very, very early proto mammals. Okay. Okay. So I guess this is from. I guess this is from the days when it was hard to get these sequences. So then Ellie alluded to, and uh, maybe what it's like now. So maybe you can tell us about some of your recent work on trying to find all the endogenous. Right. Or... Right. Um, well. Yeah, so that's if, a big if, question. If this is the if we if this is the story you can tell and the information you can tell based on this little bit of data you have from right, data, what could you tell with all the right? So I think you know the big challenge now for work on endogenous retroviruses is finding ways to deal with all the data. It's a really overwhelming quantity of data. Um, is this just because they're overrepresented in genomes? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a really huge difference between the number of endogenous viral sequences derived from retroviruses versus other kinds of virus. I mean, orders of magnitude. Um, and that's partly because retroviruses, <coughs> well, retroviruses, sort of germline integration event is not necessarily the end of the road for activity. So retrovirus, uh, you know, part of their normal replication cycle is an integration step. And it's entirely possible to have uh, uh, endogenous retroviral sequence, which then goes on to produce viruses. And some of those viruses may integrate back into the genome and we can see, based on our phylogenetic analysis and so on, that this is kind of what's occurred frequently um, throughout evolution. Um, so the average genome contains thousands, uh, maybe tens of thousands, maybe more, of separate, um, separately integrated retroviral sequences, whereas it might contain just a handful of sequences from from other viruses. So it's kind of, yeah, it's fairly binary. So, you know, with the retroviruses, um, apart from these kind of rare and unusual ones, like the endogenous lentiviruses, endogenous delta retroviruses, which, which really you only have quite low numbers. Um, otherwise, you're dealing with thousands of sequences and um, yeah, it's a sort of a big data problem to um, to really uh, to to organise that data uh, and interpret it. Um, whereas for the non-retroviral ones, it's kind of like just looking looking for interesting things. Uh, so I guess the interest kind of drops off a little after a certain point. You know, it's always. Um, exciting to find the first example of an endogenous virus from that family or this okay. family. Um, so are there any families that you 
maybe as play lots of families if you haven't played indigenous families before? Well, um, yes, there there are certain families that that are like quite conspicuously absent. Mm-hmm. Some quite surprising ones. So, um, you know, you might think that like some of these small DNA viruses, like anello uh, viruses, mm-hmm. which are absolutely ubiquitous in um, everywhere that people have looked for them basically they've found them in every organ system it's it's really mm-hmm. really um, all over the place but not apparently they've never they've never okay. integrated or they haven't left behind any fixed integrants okay. um, so yeah those are those and um, you know, certain other groups that would be really interesting, like coronaviruses, arenaviruses, still, okay. so far, nothing. I guess you can only get the flavor of this if you've looked at everything. That's right, yeah. And I mean, ultimately, um, so there's a kind of, there's a sort of, um, I guess, dynamic, or um, <coughs> just basically the way, the way that it will tend to be is that um, the oldest integrants are the ones that you're going to find first because they're going to be in the biggest amount of species. Um, but you know, we think this is kind of an ongoing process, this process of kind of integrating into the genome and generating endogenous sequences. And there may, um, so you know, there will be most likely. Um, individual organisms, possibly even including humans, um, where a virus has undergone this endogenization process, but it's only in that one individual or a handful of individuals, and you'd have to actually look in, 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 in them to find, to find that. Or their kids, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Difficult? Yeah. Hmm. Okay, but I guess that's your choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so maybe we can move on to, I mean, I kind of thought it was a, an evolution of your work looking at things like um, glue and stuff, but now I guess it actually is just a continuation of your first postdoc or your second postdoc. Uh, yeah, in certain ways. I mean, I, so um, I, I was, uh, I, I actually like um, sort of got quite interested in software development. Mm-hmm during um, my PhD. I mean, it was really like a, a bit of a left turn and it didn't really, so it was part of a, a sort of a, a sort of mini side project in my PhD, it didn't really pan out to be honest. But as part of that, I sort of took on board a lot of principles, not only of like, it wasn't so much bioinformatics, you know, I kind of came at it maybe sort of wrongheadedly, but I kind of came at it from a sort of a more of a software engineering perspective. Um, and so that kind of influenced me later on as I got more and more into working in silica. Um, and I, um, I mean, I can only explain it sort of very, uh, I'm not a software engineer by any stretch of the imagination, <coughs> but. Um, there's a kind of um, a process, I guess, 
in software development of trying to identify um, sort of processes and tasks that are common, you know, to, to many different analysis contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a little bit like what I was talking about earlier with, um, you know, um, working on the HID mm -hmm. processing pipelines and thinking about applying that to herbs. Um, and it was sort of, you know, I started thinking along similar lines about um, things unrelated to herbs, but just about processing viral sequences. Um, so I, while I was at Stanford, was working on a, a tool called the Calibrated Population Resistance Tool. And that was just, um, <clears throat> uh, it was a sort of way of formalizing a process of using sequence data to estimate the level of transmitted drug resistance, uh, particularly in sort of re resource limited regions. So there was this concern that um, it was during the sort of rollout of antiretroviral drugs um, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and uh, the issue there was that there was no way going to be money to do drug resistance testing like I described earlier. Sequencing. Exactly, yeah. You know, that, that's just way too expensive. So they wouldn't be able to monitor at that level whether introducing the drug therapy was leading to an increase in antiretroviral anti drug resistance. So there was a as um, kind of protocol that was put in place where you sort of do population sampling. So you sample a few people and you would use that sample to, to derive an estimate of the level of transmitted resistance. Um, and so it had to be done quite carefully because quite a small increase in the level of drug resistance would actually lead to a change in policy. So you really didn't want to have artifacts in there when you were estimating those things. Um, so anyway, that was really just a matter of sort of, um, you know, collecting the sequence, not, not you, you receiving the sequences and generating an alignment and then scanning for particular variations in the sequence, specifically the drug resistance mutations. Um, but it, it sort of got me thinking that that much of that process is common to, to a wide variety of contexts where you're looking at viral sequence data. Um, at that time, there was still quite a limited amount of sequence data available. And um, uh, so in some senses, you know, and I'm sure that I had conversations along these lines at the time. You know, people say, well, why, why do we need a general tool? Um, you know, we're not sequencing of any much besides flu and HIV. That's, that's kind of it. But I think the writing was kind of on the wall at that point, that sequencing was just becoming more and more efficient. And it's, it seemed to me quite likely that, you know, we'd be sequencing all kinds of things in the not too distant future. And that was sort of, that was really, you know, the beginning of, of the glue project. Um, 
which is basically a, an effort to kind of apply sort of some software engineering methodology and, and sort of thinking to that particular problem of uh, you know how can we develop a generalized framework for um, I guess it's um, so it's, this is maybe so this is a subtle point that's kind of hard to um, uh, which I'll probably do a bad job of explaining but I'll do my best um, so um, it's not just that you want it's not so much that you want um, to develop a particular like to, to implement a particular process so maybe that's creating alignments and scanning for mutations or something like that but really it's you you really want to have a way of organizing the data so that it's kind of poised to be used to address a wide variety of questions um, partly because you don't really know what's going to be interesting um, maybe that was sort of coming out of my own personal experience so um, often we're just kind of working with alignments trees sequences some feature definitions um, to answer a particular problem and so in the case of HIV drug resistance that was really sort of locked down very clear yeah. cut case but often you'd be talking to uh, you know at conferences and so on people would ask you know I'd be curious if we could maybe look at a different set of mutations or maybe we could actually look at you know two mutations together or or you've got the alignments maybe we can look for epitopes in there I mean these things would you know come from all sorts of different angles and usually the answer would be yeah yeah we can do that um, but it's quite a lot of work usually to usually the most of the work would be not implementing that process but getting the data ready so that you could do that mm -hmm. um, so Glue is what we call data centric, and it sort of puts the data ahead of the um, kind of the analysis that you want to perform on that data. Sort of um, creating what we call sort of sequence uh, sequence data resources, where all the relevant information is there, and it's also linked together um, in a way that sort of appropriately represents the real relationships between various data items then potentially you can use glue for any virus yes. but then you have different flavors right now that is going to be like hepsi this glue hepsi right and then what else you have blue tongue uh, yeah and uh, well these are the major ones at the moment are hcv um uh blue tongue rabies virus um, we have actually a, a, a really quite a good hepatitis E virus resource, which mm -hmm. so far we haven't done that much with. Um, and then also now that's sort of coming together with um, my work on endogenous viruses. Uh, so uh, we're building up for those families that have endogenous sequences uh, resources that kind of uh, basically make all of that data accessible 
and also link it to the exogenous BIOS data. Mm -hmm. So, um, in particular, uh, for retroviruses, it's something that you know. That's that's um, that's really, I guess, uh, the most important one to me is to uh, um, have to produce something for endogenous retroviruses that that really kind of rationalizes that data and allows people to uh, to um, to access it in a way that is useful for their own research. Okay. So it's really quite hard at the moment as to, to do that. Um, I don't want to sort of go off on too much of a tangent, but um, you know, it's it's starting to become quite clear that many of these endogenous sequences have been kind of co-opted by host species for one uh, one reason or another, um, and that's very interesting and could potentially drive like a wide variety of different lines of inquiry. But often the starting point is the challenging thing. The first thing you, you really want to do is um, get an overview of what's actually there in a particular genome, let's say the human genome, and also to have that data organized in a kind of a rational way that accurately reflects evolutionary relationships and also maybe captures other relevant information. So that might be, you know, the... Um, Things like that, the genes that are contained within that endogenous retroviral sequence, or even much more finely detailed genome features. So there might be things like promoters, enhancers, um, you know, various non-coding features, um, and also things like you know distance to nearest gene, okay. these kind of things. Okay, so that your framework can capture and then... Right, right. Okay, so I think maybe we can move on some more, back out to more some general points. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Uh-oh. No, no, just... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, do you have any general advice about... I mean, it's, you'll, you'll always get a lot of advice from just hearing people's stories, but if you had to sort of tease out any particular aspect of advice for a young scientist or, or an older scientist what would it be? Well um, I mean something that I, I, I'll say just because I thought of it earlier um, uh, which is something that was kind of said to me quite early on um, you know I, I remember in my first postdoc I mean I, I'd always spent like a lot of time sort of doing I guess what you call sequence staring, right? Which is basically like, you know, you get your alignment editing program open in front of you. And you just kind of look at the sequences. Um, and I remember um, quite early on, I went on a, a, a trip to AMC in Amsterdam. Uh, I gave like a talk there. And after the talk, I was... Uh, I had a conversation with Ben Barku. You know Ben? No. Okay, so um, uh, he's a, 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 you know, a very uh, 
well-known retrovirologist. Um, but I remember him sort of commenting to me. Um, he said, you know, a lot of people think that I'm crazy. <laughs> but, you're, that you're crazy or no, he's crazy? He's crazy. Oh, right, okay. Because I just, I often just sit here and I just stare at the like screen. <laughs> um, but, you know, I... I um, I really think that you know there's a lot to be gained from just doing that, um, and I, you know, I, I certainly found that that's getting down to kind of ground level um, and sort of just really looking at the sequences and, and and I don't know maybe it's sort of you your brain gets into some kind of alpha state <laughs> something like that, but. Um, you know, ideas just start to pop up. And, uh, you know, beyond like, you know, just getting ideas, it's also just that it, I think it's a really, just, it's quite important to do that. Because I, I think in the modern age, with, you know, next generation sequencing and so on, it, it, it's becoming less and less common. You know, you, you, you were actually sort of uh, one step removed from the data because there's so much of it. And, yeah, and people are just like making alignments and then make, using those alignments to make trees without ever actually viewing what's in that alignment. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you're going to miss a lot. Yeah. But um, you also miss out on the opportunity, I think, to sort of let that part of your brain, that kind of mysterious part of your brain that sort of sees patterns and, uh, and recognizes things, letting that just operate. Yeah, oh, I want to ask you two questions. The first one is, what are you doing with, what are you doing when you are not studying sequences? <laughs> what, what are you doing in your free time? Like when you want to recharge, again, you got to come up with all these amazing ideas on how to develop all this amazing software. What do you do to get inspired? That's such a tough question to answer. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, well, it, I since I've been in Glasgow, it's been a little bit different, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I really, um, one of the best things about being in Glasgow, I guess, is just the easy access to the outdoors. Yeah. So, you know, I, I doing a lot more sort of cycling mm -hmm. and uh, just walking. Nice. And um, I mean, I'm really interested in, in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, architecture, yeah. music. That is my, my following question is that exactly. What other field of science do you really keep an eye on? If, like outside of evolution, outside of biology, what do you think like any other do you like to, to read about uh, any other field of science that is not like biology per se? Yeah, I mean, but I, I dip into uh -huh. all kinds of things. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in like philosophy, economics. Yeah. Um, Did you ever return to English if you wanted to be, yeah. if you wanted to be English? Did that ever crop up again? I don't think so. No. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, uh, I, I, maybe writing. I, I quite like to do more writing, but I, I, I'm just really slow at writing. <laughs> so, so, 
It's, uh, no, that's too busy gazing at the words. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, I, you know, I used to read a lot more of it. Just, I find it very difficult to, uh, you know, kind of have to force yourself to stop thinking about scientific things. <laughs> uh, like, I, I really, I barely ever read fiction yeah. these yeah. days. And I used to read a lot. But I'm always thinking that I'll get back to it at some point. Retirement. Yeah. <laughs> no, I always find that every time I try and do something that's not science, I always get a, a scientific idea. Right. So yeah, it really pulls me back into it. So I think well, I, I, always, kind of skip. I find that as, you know, it's even a problem reading papers mm-hmm. for that. <laughs> it's not a problem. It's more... Well, yeah, it's, it's nice to get those ideas, it's but it's, it's sometimes hard to get through a yeah, paper yeah. because it seems, you know, the first few sort of paragraphs, I'm already starting to think yeah, of relating it back to you know things that I'm doing, mm-hmm. and then wanting to go off and, and investigate yeah. those. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, so then I mean, our final question: and What would you be if you weren't a scientist? Or a writer? Criminal? We haven't had that. What kind of criminal? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know because science, you know, really kind of saved me, I think, from, you know, crime. <laughs> maybe not crime, you know, just sort of uh, like I, I was, I wasn't really unsure, I'm a bit lost, you know, before I sort of, you know, found that I was interested in this. Yeah, I think that's the right answer. Thank you for listening to us, and thanks to Rob for joining us this episode. As always, you can find our previous content at cbr.myportafolio.com. Email us at cbrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com or tweet us at CBR blog. Join us next season with more new hosts and more contagious thinking.